A while ago, I read the story about a young boy who was overheard talking to himself as he walked out into his backyard. He was actually kind of strutting as he did so. He had on a baseball cap and was toting along with him a ball and bat. He was overheard saying, though, these words, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He then tossed the ball up in the air, swung at it, missed, and shouted, strike one. Then he said it again, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he tossed up the ball a second time, swung at it, and missed a second time, strike two. Then he paused for a moment to examine the ball and the bat. He spit on his hands to get traction, to hold onto the bat tighter. He adjusted his cap, and, and then he said once again, I'm, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he tossed the ball up into the air. He swung at it, strike three. There was silence for a moment. And then all of a sudden, the boy was heard saying, wow, I'm the best pitcher in the world. I think we live in a day and age in which a lot of people base their beliefs and their theology on just their own experiences and not on some truth that's reliable and solid and good. This boy didn't want to reckon with the fact that maybe he wasn't the best batter, and so he kind of changed the story up a little bit, that he was a fantastic pitcher instead. And I think we do that sometimes. The problem with basing our theology or our beliefs on, on just our experiences is that we can't really anchor to that. Those things change all the time. And especially as we go through, I think, difficult times, we need to be ones who are really anchored to truth and what's right and what we know is good. Last several weeks, we've been looking at stories of different ones who who trusted God in various ways during worrisome situations. And I made the point the first week that we can rely on God's promises. That's something that's rock solid that we can anchor ourselves to. We looked at the story of Jacob and how Jacob was so afraid to go back home after 20 years because the last time he'd seen his brother, his brother had threatened to kill him. But as he got near home, we find a wonderful prayer recorded in the book of Genesis where he recited the promises that God had made to him. He said, God, you, you said you'd take care of me. You said you'd bless me. And I'm holding on to those things. The second week of the series, we looked at Elijah, and I talked about the fact that God had provided for, protected, and proved his power to Elijah time and time again. And yet when Elijah was threatened, his own life was threatened, he forgot. He forgot all that God had done for him. And so my takeaway, and this is a shortened version of it, was remember how God has taken care of you in the past. So we rely on God's promises. We remember how he's taken care of us in the past. Then last week, I talked about the story of Jesus being in the boat with his disciples when all of a sudden a storm came up and he was sleeping at the time. And, and these disciples were scared to death for their very lives and they were seasoned fishermen. So if they were afraid, we know it was bad. And yet, Jesus was with them. They forgot that, and that's a key point because as long as Jesus was with them, nothing could happen to them, and I think it's true with us as well, where Jesus Christ is with us if we put our trust in him, and he will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He is always with us, and this is something we can anchor ourselves to. Today, we're gonna look at a story of an Old Testament heroine of the faith whose name was Esther. Many of you know that one of the interesting things about the story of Esther or the book of Esther in the Old Testament is that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't include the name God. Every other book in the Bible mentions God, but Esther doesn't. 
And I'm convinced that this was intentional. God, of course, does everything because he does things intentionally. But I think this was intentional because during that season in which they were living, I think they would have thought, where are you, God? It seemed like God was not around. And this is how I think we feel in our culture today. Where is God? And yet, the book of Esther demonstrates that God was there all the time, that he was sovereign despite the fact that they didn't see what he was doing. This morning's takeaway is this, that we need to rest in God's sovereignty and pray. We need to rest in God's sovereignty, but also to pray. Now, the word prayer doesn't appear in this book either, and yet it's there as well, as we'll see in a minute. These two concepts, by the way, the sovereignty of God and prayer seem to be in opposition to one another because when you think of God's sovereignty, I think we think of the fact that God knows everything and that God's gonna do whatever he chooses to do. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows the beginning from the end, and so the question can be raised, how could prayer change anything? And yet, when I read the Bible, I see story after story where people prayed and God acted in response to their prayers. That God has chosen in his sovereignty to many times work through the prayers of his people. And so both of these truths are important. Now let me set the context of the story of the book of Esther. The, uh, the story takes place actually in Persia, or what was Babylon. Over a hundred years earlier, the people of Israel had been carted off to Babylon because they had turned away from God. God had warned them time and time again not to go after idols and false gods, but they did not listen. And so three times the Babylonians attacked Israel, and Jerusalem in particular, most of the people were killed, but many were carted off and they became refugees in another country, in Persia. And this is where we find our heroes of the story, Esther and Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was actually, it seems, the cousin of Esther, but he must have been older because Esther's parents had passed away and we find that he was the one that ended up raising Esther. And they're the heroes of this story. Now, with this in mind, let's begin reading the story. In Esther chapter one, beginning in verse one, and I wanna mention this up front, that Esther has 10 chapters, it's a long book, and so once again today, it's gonna feel a little bit like story time with Pastor Tim, but let's begin reading again in verse one. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush, in those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. Let me stop for a moment, but historians seem agreed that this particular king went by a different name, Xerxes. Xerxes was his Persian name, and the name here is his Hebrew name. Now, to be honest with you, I wish they had stuck with the Persian name because it's easier to pronounce. But let's keep reading in verse 3. This king held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with white 
and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Beverages were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty, and no restraint was placed on the drinking. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve as much as each person wanted. Now, I read this long description here just to give you a picture of the scene. This king was amazing. He was a world ruler, and you see the wealth through this description. He calls together his officials and probably his army captains and and, and all the important people of his kingdom, and he invited them to come to Susa, which was his winter palace. And it says they were there with him for 180 days or six months. Historians seem to believe that what was happening during that 180 days is he was actually planning battle. We know that shortly after this happened, he attacked Greece. And so this was, I think, a work session. That's probably what was taking place. But at the end of the 180 days, we read that he had a feast. And he invited everyone to come, and it was a seven-day feast. And on the seventh day of the feast is where our story kind of begins. On this last day of the feast, when everyone is kind of a little bit drunk, the king decided that he wanted to show off his wife, his queen Vashti. And so he sent some of his most important attendants to go and get Vashti so that she might be brought into this great party. Now, at the time, Vashti was actually celebrating a party of her own for the women of the palace. And when she received word that the king was summoning her, she decided she did not want to go. I suspect the reason why was because she did not want to be paraded in front of a bunch of people that had drunk too much. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that she said no to him. In Esther 1 and verse 12, we read, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. She had refused to come. Now understand in biblical times with a Persian king, he could do whatever he wanted. He could have put her to death at this point. Nobody disobeyed the king. And so he he was angry about it and didn't know what to do. He chose not to put her to death, but he decided to collaborate with his officials. What do you think we ought to do? And after talking with them, they said, you can't let this thing go. Because if you allow her to disregard you, what's going to happen is that the wives throughout the kingdom are going to disregard their husbands as well. And you're going to have chaos. You need to banish her. And that's exactly what the king decided to do. He removed her throne. He said, from now on, you're not going to be the queen. Now, some time passed, and the king became kind of depressed and lonely over the situation. And so his counselors saw that he was sad, and they came up with an idea. They suggested that he put on a beauty pageant of sorts, gather together all the beautiful women from all around the kingdom, bring them here to Susa, which, by the way, I think most of us would agree that it's good that we don't live in the 5th century B.C. Persia, where the young women would all be compelled to go and work through this beauty pageant. And this is where Esther comes into the story. Now, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, and again, her cousin was Esther, 
And again, I think he was older. He ended up raising her, so he was her like de facto father. And, and when this summons went out for all the beautiful women to be sent to Susa, she was required to go, and Mordecai went with her as well. Now, the command of the king was that these women in the capital city there would each be given beauty treatments of oil of myrrh for six months, and then for the next six months, they'd be treated to perfumes and cosmetics. At the end of that time, one by one, these girls were to be brought to the king. He would spend a night with those women. He would be intimate with those women. And then he would send them to a different harem. And if he was interested in seeing that woman again, he would call her again. But most of the time, I don't think that's what happened. And again, we hear a story like this, and we're just appalled by it, that this is what was happening. But that's exactly what took place. Eventually, it was Esther's turn, and she was brought into the king's presence, and the king immediately fell in love with her. We read in Esther 2, 17 and 18, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other young women. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. I see from this just how thrilled he was with his new wife. Now, there would not be a story in the Bible called Esther if this is where the story ended. I mean, this would be a, a Cinderella story. This is the story of a commoner who became the queen of the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. And we'd say, oh, that's just a nice Cinderella-type story. But some things happened next that set the context for the story. First of all, Mordecai, Esther's cousin and de facto father, apparently was an official in Xerxes' kingdom. And one day, he heard some officials talking and coming up with a plan to assassinate the king. And when he overheard that, he sent word to Esther and said, these guys are planning to kill the king. Well, the king investigated the matter to see if it was true or not, and he determined it was indeed true. And he had these officials put to death. The second thing that happened appears in verses one and two of chapter three. We read, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. This is where we get to the drama of the story. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to this guy. Now, some theologians have decided that maybe the reason for that was that this was the equivalent of worshiping a man. But most of my sources, almost all of my sources disagree with that. They say, no, that's not what was happening here. The reason that he refused to bow down has to do with some, or had to do with some ancient history between Mordecai and his background and Haman. You see, Mordecai, we read in the book of Esther, came from the family line of Kish. This was the same family line from which Saul, the first king of Israel had come. And so he was really a descendant probably of King Saul. He probably had royal blood in him. Haman, on the other hand, it says he was an Agagite. In other words, he was an Amalekite. 
Now, centuries earlier when King Saul was in charge of Israel, he was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites, all of them. They were going to be in a battle and God had told him, you are to wipe out everybody from this people group. Now I know we again struggle with this in our culture today to understand why would God ask them to destroy and kill everybody. But I believe it's because in God's economy of things, it had become time for that nation to face his judgment. And God was using Israel to do it. And I think, by the way, there's a warning in this because I think that that when a nation has reached a certain point in their rebellion against God, it's kind of done for them. Anyway, Saul was told to destroy the Amalekites. He refused to do it. He did not kill everybody. And because he left so many alive, for the decades and centuries that followed, the Amalekites and the Israelites hated each other. And so now we find the situation in Persia where Mordecai, who's from the family line of Kish, hates this guy Haman and refuses to bow down. Dr. J. Martin writes about this. Probably this persistent day-after-day refusal stemmed more from pride than from religious scruples. Mordecai was using their national heritage, in other words, his Jewishness, as an excuse for not giving honor to a high Persian official. In other words, he should have bowed down to the guy, most likely. But he refused, and somehow all this fit in with the sovereignty of God. Continuing in verse 5 of Ruth 3, we read, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Now, at the time, this Haman, this official in the king's court, did not realize that the new queen, Esther, happened to be Jewish. In order for Haman, though, to kill Mordecai and the Jews, he had, he had to go to the king. He had to request permission. And so he came up with a lie. The lie is found in verses 8 and 9 of Esther 3. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, yet living in isolation. Their laws are different from everybody else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He then went on to say, let an order be given that they all be killed and I'll pay for it. I'll pay whatever the expenses are to wipe them out. Well, the king was pleased with the idea. He took Haman's word for it that there's this group that's, that's oppressive and, and against the king. And, and that this guy agreed to pay for it. And so he said, I think that's a great idea. And so we pick up the story in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. Now, it's important to realize that this command, this this summons that went out, this message that went out, went out on the first day, or the 13th day of the first month. This was supposed to be carried out, this annihilation, on the 13th day of the 12th month. So you realize it's about a year later. And you wonder, well, why so far in the future? 
Well, Haman decided on this date because he cast the lot. The Persian word is pur. He cast the pur. Archaeologists have discovered some of these dice that were used to try to determine the future. And so they, he cast the lot. He determined that the date would be the 13th day of the 12th month. And so that's the reason he did it on that day. In addition, though, it would require three months for the couriers to get the message to everybody. And so you realize just getting the word out was going to take some time as well. Anyway, Mordecai found out about this. And when he heard the news, he was just torn up about it. We read in verse 1 of chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Now let me explain what happened next. Esther heard that Mordecai was waiting outside the gate in sackcloth and that he'd been crying out, and so she sent some people out with some clothing for him to put on because he wasn't allowed in with the sackcloth but he refused to take the clothing she provided. And so more messengers were sent out, a trusted official, to, to ask Mordecai, what's going on? And Mordecai explained the situation and how Haman had sent this edict, edict throughout the kingdom. And he provided a copy of it so that he had proof to say, this is what's gonna happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. And so Mordecai asked Esther to do something. And it was a very scary thing. All of the stories we've looked at have, have been scary situations for the person involved. Mordecai said, what I'd like you to do is go into the king and expose this and ask for our lives. The problem with this request was that you were not allowed to go into the king unless you were summoned. She explains to Mordecai in Esther 4.11, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. It's the death penalty. Only if the king extends the gold scepter will that person live. I've not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. I can understand why Esther was so worried. If, if I go into the, if I just show up, where the king is, I may die, I may lose my life. Mordecai said, do you think that you'll be spared just because you live in the palace? You're Jewish too. And then he said something that is my favorite verse in, in the book of Esther, Esther 4.14. He said, if you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. This shows that Mordecai believed in the sovereignty of God. He said, you realize that if you don't do something, deliverance will come to us because God will save us and you yourself will not be spared. But consider this. Is it possible that God puts you in this place at this time for such a time as this? I think this is a great question, by the way, that we should ask ourselves. To ask, has God put me at this time, in this place, 
to accomplish a particular purpose for him. Esther decided, okay, I'm willing to do it. What I want you to do, Mordecai, is gather together the Jewish people, and I want them to pray, or I'm sorry, I want them to fast for three days. They're not to eat anything or drink anything. I'll do the same. Now, again, I mentioned earlier the word prayer doesn't appear in the book of Esther. And yet, and yet I think that's what's happening here. Fasting in biblical times included prayer. I think it always included prayer. They were to go without food for three days, not drink for three days, and during that time, they were to humble themselves before God, and they were to pray. If you've ever fasted before, you know that it makes you feel pretty weak pretty soon. Just missing one meal, and you kind of miss it, and missing a couple meals. The first day is usually the worst. I've not fasted many times, but, but if you fast for a few days, the first day tends to be the very worst. And you realize how weak you are. When I've fasted before, I've thought, boy, I'm just so pathetically weak. If I just skip one meal, I just, I just am so, so weak. And, and I realize at a time like that how much I need God. And that's what this is about. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And when people fast, they're humbling themselves before God. And so they were praying. And so this gets to my takeaway. We need to rest in God's sovereignty as I think Mordecai was doing, but then also to pray. We rest in his sovereignty, and then we pray. And this this is related to the key verse I've had throughout this uh, series. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, don't be anxious about anything. But you give everything to God through prayer and petition, and his peace will take over. His peace will take care of you. And so we don't worry. We trust God. We recognize that he's sovereign. Any day on, anyway, on the third day, after they had been praying and fasting, Esther dressed up in her royal clothing, and she presented herself to the king. He was sitting on the throne, in the throne room. She showed up at just the entrance to the room, and, and she didn't know what was going to happen, but when the king saw her, he was thrilled. He extended the golden scepter, and she came in, and the king said, what would you like for me to do for you? Up to half the kingdom... I'll give it to you. This was a colloquial way of saying anything you want, you can have. And she said, well, what I'd like is for you and Haman to join me at a banquet that I'm going to prepare tonight. Now, I suspect that the king was really surprised by the request. She risked her life to invite him and Haman to a banquet, but she said, okay, or he said, okay. And the people were sent to Haman's house to bring him to this banquet. And that night they were eating together, the king and Haman and Esther, and once again the king asked her, what would you like for me to give you up to half the kingdom? I'll give it to you. And she said, well, what I'd like you to do is allow me to invite you to a banquet tomorrow night as well, and then tomorrow night I'll tell you what's on my heart and mind. Well, after that first night took place, Haman went home and he was just so thrilled He gathered together his family, he gathered together his friends, and he began to brag about everything he had. He bragged about the number of kids he had. He bragged about the fact he was second in the kingdom to the king of Persia. And he added, on top of all this, the queen herself invited me, me alone, to join her and the king for a banquet. And tomorrow night, she's invited us to come back again. But then Haman added this, but none of this, none of this makes me happy when I think of Mordecai, every time I think of him. Well, Haman's wife came up with a plan, an idea. She said, well, why don't you build a gallows? 
Make it 75 feet tall. And why don't you go to the king and ask for permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows? And he thought that's a, a great idea. And so he decided to have the gallows built. And the next morning early, he showed up at the palace. The thing is, is that he didn't realize that something had happened that night. We read in Esther 6 that that night the king had trouble sleeping. And so he called in an attendant to read from the historical records, which I suspect were pretty boring, something to put him to sleep. The attendant just happened to read the story where Mordecai had warned the king about this assassination attempt. And so the king asked the attendant, was anything ever done for Mordecai? And he responded, no. Now, in the sovereignty of God, it was at that moment that Haman showed up. Now, all of this shows to me the sovereignty of God, that the king couldn't sleep that night. Was that an accident? The fact that the attendant read the right section related to Mordecai, was that an accident? No. And then Haman shows up, and he's getting ready to make his request, but the king beats him to it and says, let me ask you a question. If you wanted to honor somebody, you really wanted to honor them, what would you suggest we do for that person? Haman thought in his mind, well, there's no one the king would want to honor more than me. He said, what I would do is I would, I would dress that person in an outfit you yourself have worn, in your robes, and I'd put him on your horse, your royal horse, put the, the crest and the, the crown on top of the horse, and I'd have a chief official go and lead this horse throughout the city and proclaim, this is what happens to somebody that the king wants to honor. The king loved the idea. He said, what I want you to do is go get Mordecai and do exactly what you've said. And all of a sudden, this guy that went in to try to kill Mordecai was in a position where he had to honor the guy he hated the most. And that day, he spent his time in the city going around announcing, this is what happens to somebody that the king wants to honor. That night, he went home, and he was just so ashamed and so his wife, he told his wife what happened. And she wasn't very encouraging. This is what she said. If Mordecai is Jewish and you've begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. They were very superstitious and she took this as a sign. Basically, she said, you are doomed. And just when they had this conversation, suddenly messengers arrived to take Haman to this banquet. I suspect he'd forgotten all about it, and suddenly he was carted off to this banquet. That night, they were eating and drinking the king, Haman, and Esther. And she was asked once again, what do you want me to do for you? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And we pick up the story in verse 3 of Esther 7. Queen Esther answered, if I have obtained your approval, my king... And if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold out to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Suddenly the king stood up 
and he walked out into the garden area and so did Haman. He stood up terrified and he realized the king was planning to do something harmful to him. At this point, I'm not exactly sure what happened. It seems like he either fell down or else he just bowed down in order to plead for his life. But he ended up falling on the couch where Esther was at the very moment in which the king came in. And the king said, would you actually violate the queen while I'm in the the palace? Are you actually going to harm her while I'm right here? And as the words left his mouth, executioners came in and put a hood over his head, which again shows what the king was like. They had executioners standing nearby for such an occasion as this. Then one of the officials standing nearby said, Haman built a gallows. His intention was to hang Mordecai, the guy you honored today. He was gonna hang him on that. When the king heard that, he said, well, I want you to hang Haman on that. At this point in the story, and there's more to it, But Esther uh, revealed the identity of Mordecai, how this was the guy that had raised her. And at this point, the king decided to promote Mordecai to be in the position of second, replacing Haman. And at this point, he also gave Mordecai all of Haman's possessions. There was still a problem, though. This edict that had gone out, this command to kill the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, couldn't be changed. This is one of the things about Persian law, that once a law was passed, you could not change it. The king couldn't even change it. It was the one thing he couldn't do. And so they went to the king and said, what should we do? And the king said, what do you suggest? And they responded, well, we need to be able to defend ourselves and defeat our enemies on that day. And so couriers were sent throughout the kingdom, and somehow the story spread with the couriers that Haman had been put to death, that Mordecai the Jew was in charge now, and that on that day where destruction was supposed to take place and the Jews were to be annihilated, they could defend themselves and kill their enemies. And because of the fear of Mordecai, the officials in all the cities throughout the kingdom sided with the Jewish people on that day and 75,000 enemies of Israel were killed on that day. Because all of this happened, Mordecai demanded that from now on, the Jewish people would celebrate a feast called Purim to celebrate how God had intervened. The word Purim, this particular feast, comes from, again, the Persian word for a lot or casting the lot. And it's based on this idea that Haman cast the lot but God determined the outcome. This is what we read about in the book of Proverbs, that a man can cast the lot, but God is the one in his sovereignty that determines the outcome. According to a scholar by the name of Brenham, Purim is still celebrated by the Jews on the 14th day of Adar, which in our calendar varies from February 25th to March 25th. Now, we've covered a lot today. What should we do with the story? Well, as I look at the world today and I look at things that are happening, sometimes I get angry, sometimes I get frustrated, sometimes I wonder what God is up to and what can we do in a time like this? And I want to encourage us to remember two things. Number one is to remember that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, and we can trust that and he knows what he's doing. But the second thing I want to remind you of is that he responds to prayer. That this is a time in which we need to be praying more, not less. And I found in my own life, I'm just wanting to pray a lot more because 
We just need our God. He's sovereign, but he responds to prayer. And so how is your prayer life? And so as we consider this whole series, I encourage you to apply these four things to your life. Rely on God's promises. Remember how God is taking care of you in the past. Realize Jesus is with you. And finally, to rest in God's sovereignty and pray. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do know that you are in charge and we're grateful for that. That nothing that's happening in our world today has caught you by surprise. You are the King of kings and Lord, Lord of lords. And yet at the same time, we recognize the need to pray and how many times you respond to our prayers. And so we do look to you. We look to you for strength. We look to you for wisdom. We ask you, Lord, to use us in this time for your namesake and for your glory as ones who in trying times have found a refuge in a true and living God. We bless and praise your name. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.